Well, with that being said, everybody, we're going to jump right in because we are on part two of a short little three-part series we're doing. As you can tell, it is simply called Mature. And it comes from a theme that is overarching all throughout Scripture. I'm going to show you just one passage, but again, this is all throughout Scripture, this idea. The Ephesians 4 that we're looking at says that we may no longer be children, but rather we are to grow up in every way. We see this all throughout the Bible, the idea that we're not supposed to stay the same. We're supposed to actually grow up. And we looked in part one at the, uh, the idea that physical maturity is just so visible. You can look at somebody who is 10 years old and know they're not 20. And you can look at somebody who's 50 and know they're not 20. And, and the difference, though, is with our spiritual maturity, you can't always tell. Has someone been following Jesus 10 years, 20 years, or 50 years? According to the Bible, we should be able to tell. And there are actually three marks of spiritual maturity we're going to be looking at throughout this series. In part one, we looked at the truth that when you're spiritually mature, you have an eternal perspective over an earthly perspective. You see, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you begin to understand the importance of the next life being so much more valuable than this life. And so we talked about how that means that we trust God when we don't understand what's happening in this life. It means we use our resources in this life to make a big difference in those who go to heaven. And it means that we know a day is coming. A day is coming when there will be no more pain, no more suffering, and no more tears. Can I get an amen for that? But we also know that day is not going to be found on the earth. That is in the next life. And so as a result of that, what we discovered last week is that there's absolutely nothing we could ever lose or gain on this earth that would be worth missing out on heaven. And so today we're going to look at the, the next idea of spiritual maturity. And I'll just go ahead and tell you before we go any further, we're going to do the three parts. And the first one was kind of nice. Y'all agreed with it. And the third one is kind of nice. You're going to agree with that. Today I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings. Today's going to be a little tougher. There, out of the three marks of spiritual maturity, and all I'm doing is showing you three passages in Scripture, what the Bible says a spiritually mature person looks like. Today's uh, topic is not one that we're all going to love. Matter of fact, some are going to just like, I'm not with that one. But anyway, back to the point. As I thought about this whole series and talking about how we can be spiritually mature, I realized as I talk about being more mature that I'm insinuating some of us are immature. And then I thought, some of you might be mad at me already. You might already be kind of frustrated. And so as we go any, before we go any further, as we talk about this, I just want to throw out the idea of like, a high school athlete that wants to be a college athlete. You know, a high school athlete that wants to be a college athlete intentionally says, help me get better. They, they go to a coach and they say, help me get faster, help me get stronger, help me shoot better, help me throw better, help me catch better, whatever it is they want to do. And so here's the reality. As we talk about being more mature, you could either be offended by where you are or you could get excited about where you could be. Those are your two choices as we do this series. You can be offended about what I'm talking about. If anything resonates, like, oh, that's me. He's calling me immature. I mean, some of you are like, who, me? How dare you? Who calling immature in this place? I don't know. I mean, I'm just preaching. Y'all just look in the mirror and you decide for yourself. You know, I was not an athlete, but when I went to college, uh, many of you know, I actually, I'm a music major and I'm a concert pianist. What you may not know is that I actually started college as a trumpet major. And my trumpet professor looked at me in my very first lesson, and he said, you are a very bad trumpet player. <laughs> True story. He said, matter of fact, I'm not even sure you can be a good trumpet player. Your mouth is not shaped right. I don't know. We're just going to have to try to forget everything you've ever learned. Put your trumpet away for at least six months. Now, I was offended. 
And the reality is I could have stayed a very offended bad trumpet player. Instead, I went and found a piano teacher and I became a pretty good piano player. So today, instead of being offended by where you are, let's get excited about where we could be. And really, of course, the one topic is this. We need to be more like God. So let's look in the mirror and get excited about how much more like God we could be as we grow up in spiritual maturity. Matter of fact, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to our main passage today is in Hebrews chapter 5. And this passage was written to a group of people who were spiritually immature. And the, the author of Hebrews that we're getting ready to look at is just flat out calling them out on it, telling them to their face, not even being nice about it. And I'm pretty sure they were highly offended by it. But we're going to start in verse 12, Hebrews 5. The writer says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you. That does not sound very nice. I'm pretty sure that did not get the sermon off to a good start, right? You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. I mean, how many of you would like it if I stood up one Sunday and just said, hey, everybody, welcome to the same part of the series we did last week, because some of y'all look like y'all didn't get it. <laughs> but that's what he just did. I'm going to have to teach you the stuff I've already taught you all over again, and even has to say, and that's just elementary stuff. Y'all ain't getting it. Whoo, man, that's rough. You need milk, not solid food. Look, we don't know all the details, but here is what seems to be evident. These people had known enough about what it meant to follow Christ. They had been doing it long enough that they supposedly should be doing the right things and even teaching others how to do the right things. Instead, they were actually arguing about, do we believe this or do we believe that? Should we believe this? What's right? When they've been taught the answers. So they're arguing about, over thing, about things that they should know what the answers are. Second of all, they're living in a way that you don't want anybody to follow. And then third of all, some of them are actually in danger of losing their faith altogether. Now, the good news for you and me today, is anybody in here not the oldest sibling in the family? Anybody, a younger sibling in here? Raise your hand, younger siblings. Do you remember that time, one time at least, when your older sibling did something and they just got the riot at? Like, I mean, you've never seen your parents that angry and you stood there thinking, note to self, not gonna do that, right? I mean, you know that kind of thing? See, this is what this passage is going to do for you and me today, because our 2,000-year-old older siblings who really messed it up are going to help us understand how we can get this right. So let's keep going. And it says, anyone who lives on milk, remember he said that's all they deserve, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, ooh, just took a little dig at him, didn't he, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Here's what a spiritual infant is. And again, don't be mad at me, I'm just the messenger. A spiritual infant is someone who has met Jesus. You've at least come to life. You're born. You're an infant. You do know that Jesus died for you on the cross. You do want to go to heaven. You don't want to go to hell. You say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. But then you stop. And maybe that's some of us here today, or maybe you just know someone like that, where they are the same person 10 years after following Jesus as they were a month after following Jesus. Nothing has grown and nothing has changed. And that's what the writer is, well, really condemning these people for. It's like, wait a minute, you're infants. You're not even acquainted with the basic teaching of how to be right with God, how to live, how to do what he says to do, what is right, what is wrong. And if you are, well, you're not doing it. Man, I don't know how these people stuck around for the rest. Remember when he said you need milk, not solid food? He goes on to say, but solid food, that's for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. 
Again, I told you the series is coming out of three passages that tell us what a spiritually mature person is. And so we just finally got it defined for us. A spiritually mature person is someone who knows good from evil and they demonstrate it by how they live. A spiritually mature person is someone who knows good from evil and they demonstrate it by how they live because they are constantly using, did you get that phrase there? Through constant use, constant use of what? Constant use of the spiritual truths about righteousness they had been taught. They actually made decisions based on the things they had been taught. They lived their lives based on the things they had been taught. That's what a spiritually mature person did. But unfortunately, everybody in this group wasn't doing that. So the question for you and me is, is really obvious. How do we apply this to our lives? Well, if we're gonna apply this to our lives, we have to start where they were stuck. And that is we have to define this idea of good and evil. We've got to know the difference between good and evil so we can live it in our lives. And if we're going to do that, well, we've got to have a definition. Now, if this were an English word and we were just looking up an English word, we would go to Webster's Dictionary or you'd go to dictionary.com, right? But this concept is more than just an English word. How do we distinguish between good and evil like they were doing? We've got to, to go to something beyond that. So maybe we can think, well, you know what? Humanity's been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, so why don't we go and look at history? Maybe history can help us understand how to distinguish between good and evil. Well, actually, the answer to that would be no. Matter of fact, we could just take one of the things that we've seen all throughout history, and that's slavery. It's actually not a new topic. It's an old topic. We can go back to any great empire and when they conquered the world, they took people as slaves. The Egyptians, they had God's people as slaves. The Romans conquered the world. They took everybody they conquered as slaves. We know of the African-American slave trade, and you may not be aware of this, but there are more people in slavery today upon the earth than in all of the African-American slave trade put together. Isn't that scary? The point, though, is that every point in history, there were some who said, well, this is a good thing we're doing. And they thought it was good, to conquer a people and take some of them as owned. Now, at every point in history, someone else all stood up and said, no, it's not good, it's evil. So what we discover is history can't give us an answer because there was no agreement there. Maybe we can look to governments or political leaders. Maybe they can help us distinguish good from evil. I was waiting on somebody to laugh at that one. That would be a good joke, wouldn't it? I mean, actually, what we see is whatever you call them, Kings, presidents, dictators, does it really matter what name you give them? We've seen many of them commit great evil to either advance their personal or their national good. And that'd be real easy at this moment. Many of us, we probably first think of someone like Hitler, and that comes to mind. That'd be okay. But the truth is, you only have to look at last week's news to see a nation and a, and a, a political leader invading some other nation in order to enlarge their territory, killing civilians along the way, while some of their allies and friends say, this is good. And then others say, but this is evil. So we can't go to our governments and our political leaders to get an answer. Maybe we could just go to our current culture. Let's just look at what everybody else is doing around us. Maybe we can figure out what is good and evil by that. But actually, if we look at one of the greatest debates of our culture right now, well, it is because we cannot agree on good and evil. Let's take the topic of abortion. Some say this is good that a woman has a choice and does what is best for her. Others say it's evil that you're taking a life. So once again, we can't get any agreement. Where can we go to get a definition for what is actually good and evil? Well, if we can't get it from history, we can't get it from government leaders, we can't get it from culture, we're never going to get it from anything in humanity. Matter of fact, you may say something is good that you may say is evil. There's only one place we can go, 
and that is God himself. You see, the reason that God is the only one that can define and distinguish good from evil is because God is good. What that means is God's very nature is good. What God says is good is anything that aligns with his nature and anything that he says is evil is anything that is opposed to his nature. His nature is good. Everything opposed to him is evil. His being distinguishes good from evil. So where will we get this definition? Well, if, if it's God's definition, then we're going to find this in God's word. Matter of fact, if this were an open book test, and you were just looking at the passage we did today, I hope everybody would have already gotten the answer because we read it. It was in there. It was at the very beginning. He says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Teach you what? The elementary truths of God's word. Did y'all catch that earlier? The elementary truths of God's word is what they've been ignoring. That's why they aren't able to distinguish good from evil. There were some really basic things they had been taught from God's word. Matter of fact, if we're going to, to go any further today, we've got to look at a really bold claim that the Bible makes about itself. Let me share this with you out of 2 Timothy 3. It says that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. What that means is it's the very breath of God. It is His very essence that gives us His Word. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for instruction. This is how we can learn what is right and wrong. For conviction, so that when we're doing wrong, we go, oh, I need to make a change. For correction, so that a parent can talk to a child or a pastor can talk to someone or a brother and sister in Christ can talk to another brother and sister in Christ and help them see for training in righteousness so that any of us can know how to live a godly life. And he finishes it to say, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work, so that the man of God may be complete. Um, I'm a Bible nerd, and so I always like to include one nerd fact as best I can in every sermon. So we're going to have a nerd moment if this is okay. Try to follow along because this is actually important, even if you're not a nerd. The, you saw the word complete was underlined right there. Now, this passage was written by Paul, who wrote our passage last week and wrote most all of what we're looking at for this theme of mature. And the Greek word for complete that we underline in this passage is very, very similar it, it, in a sort as a synonym to the Greek word for mature. So why did Paul use this word for complete Instead of using the word he used every other time for mature. So the nerd answer to that is because the actual meaning is slightly different. It's that much different. The Greek word for mature is actually talking about our ethical conduct. It's, it's the result of the process. But the Greek word for complete, although it is very, very similar, it's actually talking about ability and only ability. So follow this. That just said that all Scripture is from God to make us complete. All Scripture is from God to give us the ability to be mature. That's why he used a different word there. Because all Scripture is from God. It is useful for the things we just read, instruction, correction, rebuke, and, and so forth, so that we have the ability to be mature. Don't miss this. If I've lost you or if you've been taking a nap, tune back in for this. God's word only gives you the ability. God's word gives you the ability to be mature, but God's word only gives you the ability. In other words, you can know something and not do it. You will have to choose. You have God's word. God's word claims that it gives you the perfect ability to be spiritually mature, but not everyone is spiritually mature. It's the whole problem with the Hebrews that we're reading to. 
And so, so what that means, we, we now make it to our final point here, and that is this. When you are spiritually mature, you surrender to God's word over your wants. I told you, this is the one you're not going to like. But when you're spiritually mature, at least according to Scripture, you surrender to God's word over your wants. And that is where the real challenge comes in because, well, we don't always want to do what God's word says. Sometimes we don't even agree with what God's word says. So I'm going to help, hopefully, make this very, very practical as we finish up this today. So let's get back to the whole point. Being mature is a result of growing up, right? That's what that word means. Being mature is the result of growing up, which is a process. Well, then this also is a process. Surrendering to God's word over your wants is a process. And I'm going to give you the very practical way that that plays out in our life. It begins first simply by knowing God's word. If you don't know God's word, you're going to find it really hard to do anything in God's word. You have to know God's word. You know, right after college, I felt called to be a missionary in Romania. And so as I was moving to Romania, I got a checklist of all the things that I was supposed to do. And, uh, you know, make sure your passport's up to date, make sure your fundraising's done and your bank accounts you can access from around the world. One of them was to get an international driver's license. I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense because I'm going to be driving over there. I should get an international driver's license. But I actually thought when someone said to do that, that it meant I would take a class or I would, I would have to go and pass a test on what different things meant all around the world. And so people told me, if you want to get an international driver's license, you go to the AAA travel office. So I went to a AAA travel office and said, I need an international driver's license, expecting to take a class or to take a test or something. And they said, give us $10. <laughs> I gave them $10. They took my picture and they glued it to a little sheet of paper and said, here is your international driving license. They didn't tell me a thing. I didn't understand half of the road signs that I saw around the world because they are different in other countries. And if they've got words, good luck with that because I don't speak the language. I don't know. And to this day, I have no idea what the zigzag line in between lanes means halfway around the world. Are you supposed to like swerve? Are you supposed to pass, not pass? I mean, I could have been in jail because you can't do what you don't know. And I had no idea what I was supposed to know. So if you want to know God's word, you might actually need to read it. I know you're in church and the pastor just said, read the Bible. Yes. You're going to have to at least begin by reading God's word. Or you can at least get one of those apps that'll read it to you. You can listen to someone read to you God's word. But no, my point is this. You need to hear more than someone talking to you about God's word. I mean, I appreciate what you're doing. I love what I get to do. I get to explain some of God's word to you each weekend. But here's what's wrong with that picture. Today in my message, I am going to use five verses from the Bible, five verses only. And so what that would mean is in order for you to learn the entire Bible from me, you are going to have to agree to come back every single weekend and you are never allowed to take vacation and I will never take a vacation. And if you live 120 years from today, I can teach you the entire Bible. Anybody see a problem with that? Problem number one, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> Problem number two, you're going on vacation or you got a kid in an AAU league or something else. And somewhere along the way, it might be a problem. None of us are going to live 120 years from this moment. There you go. So if you want to be mature, the first step is you're actually going to have to know God's word because God is the one who defines and distinguishes good from evil for us. Now, the second one, before I give it to you, I just want to tell you that most of the time, if you ever hear someone preach a message like this, they only give you two of the three practical steps I'm going to give you. They leave out this one. I want to be a pastor who gives you permission for this one, and it is to wrestle with God's word. 
Meaning when you begin to know God's word, you begin to read God's word, you're not going to like all of it. Nor are you going to understand all of it. Because again, God's word is his nature. You and I, we have a different nature. It's called humanity. We have a human nature. When we run into God's word, it is not always going to be easy. Matter of fact, I grew up going to church, and I don't know what image you have of this, but when I read the Bible, well, at least not now, but when I grew up reading the Bible, I always thought this was a like, you can't, you don't, you better not, you really, really, really better not, your mama's going to be mad, God's mad too, you better not, you can't, you, don't. you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was just like a whole bunch of, and you don't want to not do all those, some of those like, I'm going to do it anyway, yep, going to do that anyway, yep, I mean, you know what I'm saying? And then there are things in here you're like, why would God say that? That's just weird. I don't understand that. Can somebody make sense of that? I mean, you have to wrestle with God's word. And I want to give you permission to wrestle with God's word. Too many people don't. They just, I don't like it. Ain't going to do it. Don't understand it. Not going to do it. I mean, you can't stop there. So I want to tell you, get answers. Do some research. And as you look for answers and as you do some research, can I please beg of you, don't believe every website written by somebody who does not like God. Seriously. It does not take much to put something on the internet. It's not hard. You should get Facebook. You can try it. Put anything. I mean, it is really easy to put something on the internet. And there are lots of things out there. There are actually even books and libraries written by people who don't like God. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus walked the earth. And when he did, he looked at some humans and he said, you were of your father, the devil, and he's a liar. Why should we be surprised there are humans alive right now that are lying? The devil is still lying through humans today. And we think that just because someone has gotten a, a degree or a PhD or become a science teacher or a history teacher or a whatever website site writer, that suddenly they are a greater authority than God himself. Look, I know I'm like about to offend somebody and stepping on some toes here, but let me tell you a truth you actually do need to know. And, and I'm gonna say this 100% accurately because this is on the internet and I know I could get quoted on this. So I'm gonna read this very carefully. I'm gonna do it twice because it's so long. Number one, well, <laughs> there is no objection raised against the validity of scripture. There is no question raised about the accuracy or truthfulness of scripture that has not been fully answered and satisfied by a doctoral level expert in their field. Did y'all know that was even true? Did you even understand all that? That was a lot of words. I'm gonna do it one more time. There is no objection ever raised against the validity of scripture. There is no question that's ever been raised about the accuracy or truthfulness of scripture that has not been fully answered and satisfied by a doctoral level expert in their field. What that means is you may have had a seventh grade science teacher who said you can't believe the Bible. You may have had a history buff who said, well, you know, if you look back over time, you may have had a friend who said, I found this website. There are plenty of people out there who don't believe in God's word. And matter of fact, from the beginning, there's been an attack on God's word. What you do need to know is that there are people with PhDs, letters after their names, astrophysicists, biologists, astrologers. I mean, you just keep the list going. I'm not even smart enough to give you the list of smart people. I don't even know what they all are. But there are many of them that will testify that the Bible has the best answer. There are astrophysicists that will tell you that the best explanation for how this world came to be is found in the Bible. 
There are biologists that will tell you there's no way that we came about by accidental evolution on its own. The eye is actually designed in reverse. It would never evolve into itself. It would evolve out of itself. It makes no sense. There are really smart people that will tell you that you can keep your brains, you can be intellectually honest and believe in the Bible. No, I'm not telling you everybody says that. I'm just telling you, it's a reality. So as you do your research, please keep that in mind. And for those of you that would like a starting point, we have a series on our website we did for this very purpose. I used to be a youth pastor and I used to be a school teacher. And one of my passions is when people get lied to, trying to, like, just, I just want to slap liars, you know? And so we did a, a series called The Bible to make it really easy for you to find. I did two of the four parts of that series with a scientist. I just interviewed a scientist on stage, someone who retired as the chief science officer of their organization. They were super smart. They, like, whoop, you know, all I could do is ask the question. They had to give all the answers. So I'm just telling you, if you're in that place and you're, you're beginning to wrestle, how can I do what God says? How can I do what God's word says if I don't agree with it? Start there. And that leads us to the final step. Now, the final step is obvious. What are we trying to get to is to surrender to God's word over our wants. So, of course, step three is that's what we do. We surrender to God's word. We surrender to God's word. And that, that brings us to, to two big realizations that we have to have in order to do that. The first one is we have to realize the Bible is not a rule book to take the fun out of life. It's not. I know I talked a minute ago about how it's all these you can'ts and you don'ts and you better not kind of things. But actually what it is, if God created us, it's the manual for the, the best and most pleasurable life we could ever have. And unfortunately, some of us have the story where we've broken our bodies or broken our souls doing it our own way. And God's word actually gives us a way that our bodies and our souls end up more intact. And our life on the earth is a lot more abundant until we get to heaven. The second realization that we have to have if we're going to surrender to God's word is he's God. What does that mean to you? Can we just stop talking about being a Christian for a minute? Follow me if you're a guest. This is not heresy, just an illustration. For a minute, let's just stop talking about being a Christian and let's stop talking about the Bible. And let's just talk about the word God. Humanity has come up with ideas of God in many cultures, many centuries, all around the world. If you were to go up to an atheist and say, if there were a God, what would it mean to you? If you were to go and look at the ideas that humanity has come up with, there's a universal theme. God would be greater than us. That's a universal idea. Who, Even if you make up your idea of God, God is greater than humans. And God is worthy of worship of some sort and sacrifice of some sort. And people have come up with really evil ideas of sacrifice to please God. And, and now let's come back to being Christians and having the Bible. You know what the sad part is? Once we discover who our God is, our God is good and our God is loving. What do we do in return? We take advantage of him and we demean him. Well, since my God loves me, he won't punish me. Since my God is so good, he will forgive me. I can do anything I want. I will totally ignore his nature and what pleases him. I will please me because my God loves me so much. I'm his favorite child. And that's what we do. See, one of the steps of surrendering to God's word at some point is we stop arguing with our science teacher about God's word and we just realize if he's God, 
He deserves my surrender. I mean, if that's who he is, then he defines what pleases him. Matter of fact, I know this is heavy. And if you're a guest here, you're like, man, this is hard. So I, I thought to make this practical to you, I would, I would lighten it up a little bit with a really funny illustration instead. So here we go. Let's imagine the Bible says, thou shalt not eat pickles. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be the best Jesus follower you've ever met. Because I hate pickles already. I think pickles are disgusting. I hate vinegar. I can't be around the smell of vinegar. Whatever I've eaten is going to now be uneaten if you get the picture. I mean, I can't handle pickles in any form. When I order food, if there's a pickle on it, I tell them, please do not bring the pickle. And I'm not trying to be ornery, but I will find a polite way to say that at least twice, maybe three times while I'm talking to the waitress. You know, by the way, no pickles. I'll even ask the question, is there a pickle on the plate? Because if there's a pickle on the plate, please do not give me that free pickle. I don't want it. More importantly, I don't want the pickle juice touching all my other food because I have to throw that food away. I cannot eat a French fry that's been touched by pickle juice. If it gets on the bread, I can't tear that little piece of bread off. I can't stand pickles. So if the Bible says thou shalt not eat a pickle, I am going to be the best person out there. But on the other hand, the Bible says thou shalt not eat chocolate. Ooh, I'm going to be the chief among sinners. Why do I give you that illustration? It's because we're all different. Your struggle with God's word is not your struggle with God's word. When God says, this is not what's best for your soul, some of us go, oh, cool, that works for me. But somewhere else in scripture, when you see God saying, that's not what's best for your soul, we go, eh, I don't know. Pretty sure I'm not ready to make that change. I kind of like that one. So some of you reading God's word is a list of pickles. <laughs> it's easy. Some of you reading God's word is a list of chocolate. It's going to be hard to surrender. And so really, I think the best thing we can do is bring it all down to this. I'm going to ask you one question. And if you can answer this one question, it's going to help you take a step towards spiritual maturity. Where do you struggle to surrender to God's word? because it's not what you want. Where do you struggle to surrender to God's word? Because it's not what you want. You see, you may say, oh, well, Jimmy, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, actually. I don't have any of those hot button cultural issues that, you know, Gen Z is wrestling with. Okay, well, let's start. Maybe you just struggle to forgive. God says forgive. You don't want to. That person was just mean. It's some of you, you haven't had Thanksgiving with people in seven years because you can't forgive. Some of you, maybe it is an issue that seems a little more argumentative to our current culture, like your sexuality or your definition of marriage. Maybe it's the way you spend your money or what God wants you to do to honor him. And you don't really like his word says that tithing. That What the heck? I ain't doing that. Maybe you don't like the fact that the Bible says we're supposed to do everything we do as though we're doing it unto the Lord. That means you're actually supposed to try to make an A in algebra. Come on. You're like, Jesus ain't my algebra teacher. Too bad. Same thing if you go to work tomorrow, parents. You're supposed to do the best. Maybe you're supposed to be kind. Did you know it's supposed to be kind? But you get in your car and you're like, I don't want to be kind. I'm not going to let them out. I'm going to block them. You know I mean? 
Where do you struggle to surrender because God's word is not what you want? Matter of fact, I told you I'd share five verses. Here's your fifth one. It's Galatians 2.20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. Crucified is what happened to Jesus, being nailed to the cross until he was dead. So what that means is you're dead. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm dead. You know what dead people want? Absolutely nothing. Because they're dead. That's why it goes on to say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What I do, I do because Jesus is choosing for me. Jesus is choosing for me. I don't choose any more. And that's what we have to wrestle with today. So I'm going to leave you with the simplest picture I could ever give you of how this works. The founding pastor of this church, his name was Jerry. And uh, some of you know him because you've been in this church that long. And uh, Jerry and I used to have something in common. We both hate cats. And uh, when Jerry came here to help start the church and my wife wanted a cat and I knew Jerry hated cats, I thought he was going to take my side because, you know, if the pastor agrees with you, it is so much easier to go home and tell your spouse, well, the pastor said so. So as I was talking to him about cats and hoping he was going to help a brother out, he said, yeah, Jimmy, I hate cats. But my wife loves cats. And I love my wife. So we have cats. So here's your simple truth I'm going to leave you with. The immature do what they love. The mature do what God loves because they love God. The spiritually mature do what they love. Spiritually mature do what God loves simply because they love God. So today I'm going to end with something that I believe God has asked me to do. So don't take this in the wrong way. I don't mean it to be hyper-spiritual, but I believe there's an anointing to the moment we're about to have. When I asked you a question a moment ago, where do you struggle to surrender to God's word because what you want is different? I know every one of you could answer it so easily. We all have that thing that plagues us. We wake up every day feeling we're not good enough because we know the Bible says that. Well, what I feel like God wanted me to do today was to pray for you for that one thing. And I believe here in this moment that there will be an anointing for the Holy Spirit to help you fall out of love with that thing you love more than what God loves. Because that's really what it comes down to, right? We've just grown up in this world and we, we love some things in this world. So did everybody name it a minute ago when I asked you? If not, name it right now. Just tell God. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't ever have to tell another person. And please don't put it on Facebook. But name it. Everybody got their one thing that what you want is different from what God wants? Let me pray for us. God, we do just come before you right now confessing that we, we love some things that are different from what you love. We've grown up in this world, and first of all, we, we repent. We say, God, we're sorry. But even when we're sorry for it, we struggle to, to do what you want instead. So God, I pray right now for every person here, every person worshiping online that this thing that we've named, that we've said, this thing, God, it comes between us and you. We're having a hard time laying it down and surrendering to what your word says. 
This thing, God, we ask you right now, would you cause us by the power of your spirit to fall out of love with that and to fall more in love with you so that we simply do what pleases you because we love you more. God, you alone change hearts. And so right now we're asking you to change our hearts in this place right now. If you'll just stay in a, a place of prayer, I'd like to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. See, the good news is, even though we all did something that wasn't what God wanted, it's called sin, God loved us so much he wouldn't leave us separated. So he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in our place so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life. We call it the free gift of salvation. Some of you have yet to receive this gift. I wanna help you do this right now. Wherever you are, would you simply pray and say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my simple prayer today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom? Amen. Would you all help me celebrate with them, everybody?